0: School classes now, if you'd like to, and um, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-one. <clears throat> Matthew twenty-one is um, what is called the triumphal entry. It's uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This event, by the way, marks the last week. Uh, the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. So even though we're only in chapter 21, uh, this, this is kind of like from here on out. We're just dealing with that last week. Um, it's recorded in all four Gospels. And, and what I love about it is it's a clear proclamation by Jesus that he is, in fact, Jesus's long-awaited Messiah. Um, this event was actually talked about 500 years, you know, around 500 years before it actually happened. The prophet Zechariah talked about this day. And he says in in Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Israel has been expectant. They've been waiting for this this day to come. And especially since they've been living under Roman rule, um, they've been hoping that their king would come to rescue them to overthrow their enemy and to set them free. And this is exactly what Jesus is coming to do, just not in the way that they were expecting it. So he is coming to overthrow their enemy, to rescue them and to set them free. But in a spiritual sense, and not in a physical sense. So there's got to be this huge buzz in Jerusalem right now. Hopes are high. Everybody's excited. The top headline of the day, by the way, all the mainstream you know, news outlets are talking about something that's just happened there. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can just imagine tuning in you know, to this. Okay, today in Bethany, we are hearing reports of a man named Jesus, who some are calling a prophet, who's raised a man named Lazarus. You know, eyewitnesses say he stinketh. You know, he was in the he was in the tomb for three days. That's King James, but I think it's funny. You know, so, so this, is, this is like every, everybody's talking about this. Uh, this. This type of thing just doesn't happen. It's, a, it's kind of a showstopper. So there's a buzz and everyone is full of excitement, right? Well, not exactly everyone because the religious leaders, they're not excited about this at all. They're, they're getting quite fed up with, with this Jesus of Nazareth and his antics. Um they're all kind of filled with fear over this prospect that they might, they might lose some of their power if he continues to gain popularity. So that kind of sets the stage. And then when you take all four gospels and what's written in them and, and kind of compile them together, what you see is kind of three different perspectives emerge from, from what's happening that day or three different vantage points to consider. So you, you consider Jesus, what he's experiencing as he's coming into town. You think about what the religious leaders are experiencing as he's coming into town. And then what all the people are experiencing. And so that's kind of what we're going to focus on this morning. Matthew 21, 1 says, "'Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said, or sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the, Lord's need, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once.'" I don't know about you, but I would not want to be tasked with this errand. This would stress me out so much. Because it sounds like you're just going into town and stealing two animals, right? And then he just says, hey, if somebody, if somebody confronts you, just say, the Lord needs them. And they'll just let you go. And I'm thinking, send somebody else for this job. I don't want to do that. This sounds like grand larceny. Um, but the cool thing is about this is that we think about who Jesus is. Um, he knows everything and he owns everything. So he knows what's in the next town and he knows what's in the next day and he knows what's in the next week and month and year. And and we don't have to worry about it. His plans and his purposes will be accomplished. And we just see this little glimpse of like the attributes of God in Jesus in in this little instance once again. So verse four tells us that the procurement of the donkey and the colt took place to fulfill what we just read in the prophet Zechariah, but it says it in verse five again, say to the the daughter Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and they that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So first we're going to think about Jesus's perspective as he rides in. Uh, He's just completed three years of just very intense public ministry. And it's safe to say that he's turned Jerusalem upside down and he's radically challenged the, the religious institution as it was. So he's basically the most controversial person that Israel's ever had in their history. Some want to crown him and some want to crucify him. And it all culminates now in this moment. You know how Jesus was always saying, you know, it's not my time yet. And it's not my time, not yet. And he would kind of avoid or escape the people that were trying to capture him, sometimes in really kind of cool ways, like they all want to grab him. And all of a sudden he's just gone. Well, guess what? It's his time. It's time. And this is so, so amazing to think about. He willingly rides into Jerusalem knowing exactly what's going to happen to him. He's ready to complete the mission. And this all just happens to coincide with Passover. Now, if you know what Passover is, it's a time when, when um, we celebrate a lamb that was sacrificed so that the wrath of God wouldn't come upon his people. And, and so here we have Jesus coming in on Passover for this very reason. And I love that the religious leaders, um, they're going right along with this plan even though it's the last thing they would want to do. You know that they would never want to aid Jesus in this. And yet they're, they're going right along with God's plan without knowing it, which is fantastic. All right. Now, when I think about Jesus riding into town, I couldn't help but think about how I would do it if it was my time. So this is, this is kind of, you know, this is Jesus's chance to make a grand entrance, to let everybody know who he is. You know, he is the God of of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the true king of Israel. And I'm thinking, how would I, how would I go about this? And the first thing I thought of was the, you know, if you've got kids, you're, you're forced to watch cartoons. That's the only reason you do this. So I remember watching Aladdin and you see when Prince Ali comes into town, you know, he's riding on an elephant and there's a parade and there's music and symbols and he's, he's throwing gold coins into the crowd and everybody sees him coming in and and if you're more mature than that, then The Count of Monte Cristo is the other one I thought of immediately. And if you know this story, it's a great movie. But, you know, he comes in, he invites all these people to his, to his giant estate. And then, you know, where's he at? Where's he at? And then you see a hot air balloon kind of sinking down from the sky. And then four ropes go over the edge. And these, these acrobats come out and, you know, swing down to the ground and grab these ropes. And they all four corners, they just slowly pull down and then these stairs open up and out walks the count of Monte Cristo and all everybody's mouth is dropped open and I'm thinking, that's what I'm talking about. That's how I'm coming in, right? Something like that. But but then you just look at our Lord and think, how did he come? How does he show up on the scene? It's nothing like that. Our king chooses to make his grand entrance on a borrowed animal, a simple beast of burden. That isn't the least bit impressive. A young donkey with a saddle made of used garments. (laughs) Just astounding. It's the opposite of triumphant. That's what we call it, but it's not that. It's not humanly speaking, it's not that. It's incredibly humble, it's unimpressive, it's unthreatening, and it's really modest. And and that's because he's not riding in to be crowned, he's riding in to be crucified. He knew that he would be rejected by his own people. He knew what awaited him as he came in, and he also knew what awaited them, right? And so Luke's account actually says that as he rode into town, he was weeping because he wanted to gather them together and save them. You know, he wanted them to, to recognize who he was, and their rejection of him um, was, it was devastating. So Luke's account also gives us another significant detail that I love. It, it again, once It tells us who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God in the flesh because what happens is that all these things that the people are saying about Jesus are only things that should be attributed to God. And the Pharisees pick up on this and they they, they try to stop it from happening. So in Luke 19, verse 37, it starts out, it says, as Jesus was drawing near already on the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice because of all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples and he answered i tell you if these were silent the very rocks would cry out i just love that you know jesus was humble but he was never modest about who he was and he's telling them he deserves to be praised and that he will be praised no matter what you know if, if they won't do it the rocks will do it something it's going to happen there's there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus is lord and it it just it's not optional it's going to happen and what a great day that's going to be but this was not that day on this day jesus's perspective was that he was a humble king coming to die well now you think about the religious leaders perspective this day Um, as jesus's popularity and his renown have grown so has their resolve To get rid of him. You know, and the recent raising of Lazarus was, again, it's a headline that's not going away anytime soon. It's all everyone's talking about. You know, everybody wants to get a glimpse of the the one who can raise the dead. I mean, wouldn't you want to see this? Of course. So, this poses an extremely desperate situation for the Jewish religious leaders. They, They come to the conclusion they've got to do something about Jesus, and now they have to deal with Lazarus, too, because he's like a walking billboard of you know, Jesus's power and miracles. So John 12 verse 9 says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now the fact that this is Passover week means that the, the, the town swells to you know five six times as much as, as normal. So there's lots of people coming in, and the last thing they want are more people convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. So what's the next logical step? Well, murder, obviously. I mean. Duh, right? It's, just, it's astounding. It's like, well, we got to kill Jesus. And we got to kill Lazarus too. And these are the religious leaders, right? These are, these are those that are supposed to be representing God. And rather than come to the obvious, you know, connect the dots obviously to, hey, this guy raised somebody from the dead. Maybe he's of God. No. The, the obvious conclusion to them was murder. Cold-blooded murder is the answer. It's like, okay. And this just shows you that men will go to extreme lengths to protect their power, and their position. Uh, we see it all the time still today. Uh, we like to believe people have our best interests in mind very often. They generally have their best interests in mind, and and, and we might not think like we're capable of doing things like this, but when our way of life is threatened, that you know, we're not above these kinds of things. We, we want to find a way to to be prosperous and popular and powerful, and that can bring out the worst in all of us. So you may not actually you know, murder anyone, but I know, you know, a little character assassination isn't beyond me. I can do that and, and feel pretty good about myself. So, so, you know, we just need to be aware of this. So the religious leader's perspective and all of this is get rid of him before he gets rid of us. And then we look at the people's perspective. And now at first glance, it, it kind of looks promising, right? Looks encouraging that they line up in masses and they greet Jesus as he rides into town. And, and again, listen to some of the things they say. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna literally means we beg you to save or please deliver us. So that's good. Then John 12 says they took out these palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they're, they're, like, they're acknowledging where he came from and that he's king. They're putting out these palm branches, which was kind of like the way of rolling out the red carpet for royalty. It's like, this is, this is exciting. This is why we still celebrate Palm Sunday in churches. So it looks like we should be encouraged by this. It looks like some kind of a profession of faith even. But here's the problem. In just a few days, these same people are going to go from shouting these things to shouting something completely different. They're going to be shouting, crucify him and we have no king but Caesar. That's shocking, isn't it? And, and you think, how, how can this happen? How can somebody go from acknowledging who Jesus is and asking them to save him one moment and then completely going the opposite way the next? And it's a great question to consider because we still see this happening today, don't we? I can't tell you how many times that I've seen somebody come into the the church or I've met somebody who has received Jesus, so to speak, only to disappear or vanish or walk away a short time later. And it very often comes down to this. It's what people want from Jesus and what they expect from Jesus. This is what we see in this instance that we're looking at on the triumphal entry day. It wasn't a case of mistaken identity. It was a case of mistaken ideas. So they got the who of Jesus right? They got the why of Jesus wrong. They expected him to come in and be their conquering king who would overthrow Roman rule and, and you know, make them stop being oppressed and, and reinstate their kingdom. So they weren't looking for a spiritual solution to save their souls. They, they were looking for a political solution to change their circumstances. And I think this makes more sense to us very often. We, we do the same thing with Jesus today. Um, people want him to come in and make all their problems go away and make their lives comfy and nice, right? And I love comfy and nice. Those are two of my favorite things. I get this. But the minute that you realize that's not what Jesus came to do, you're going you're gonna to jump ship. You're going to move along. People like the idea of having their own personal Jesus where they can just kind of ring their little bell when they need something and, and he'll come running to, to their aid. Um, and, and, and you can kind of see, sure, I'll call him a king as long as he does that right? But is that a king? (laughs) No. Jesus isn't a genie in a bottle that's come to grant your wishes. He's not your butler. He is God who's come to deal with your sins. That's very different. So this is a great question for each of us to consider as we think about this event. Why do you want Jesus? What does he have that you need? Why become a Christian? And why do you become to church? Why do you come to church? What's the reason? Now, over the last years, you know, 12 years plus of pastoring the church here, um, we've seen people come from, all, you know, all different reasons people have come here. And and the first one that I'm, I'm thinking of is kind of like what we see here on on this first Palm Sunday. They come for the show. They come for signs and wonders. And John twelve eighteen confirms this. It says that the reason that they, the crowd came that day was they'd heard that he'd raised Lazarus from the dead and they wanted more. And so... I think this is something we all have to struggle and deal with. You know, we all tend something otherworldly. We, we, we crave excitement. We crave the miraculous. It's exciting, you know, when we, when we get kind of that thrill and see something really amazing happening. And, and I, I basically refer to this as adrenaline Christianity um, or bouncy house Christianity is kind of what I jokingly call it sometimes. It's just that idea of like, we, you know, this is fun. This is fun. What's next? Um, here's the problem. If you win people with excitement... You have to keep the excitement going, right? If you want them to stick around, that's how it works. If the excitement goes away, they'll go away. So it's kind of like, well, that was fun while well, it lasted. What's next? You know, what, what's the next exciting thing? And this is what we see here. There was this buzz in Jerusalem that day, and it's easy to see why they would have gotten caught up in all the, uh, the you know, this emotional whirlwind and gotten excited and carried away. Um, but, but the minute that goes away and you kind of get bored with it again, you just revert back to what life was before. By the way, if you've ever wondered why we don't do altar calls, people ask us every once in a while, like, why, why you guys hate altar calls? Well, this is one of the reasons why is it's very easy to play on the emotional state of a person um, who's just heard a moving speech and kind of manipulate them into action. So it's kind of like what a coach does at halftime when their team's losing. You know, you just get them riled up and excited, and then you play on that. And so we've jokingly said in the past, you know, there's been sermons I've heard where they were just so good that I wanted to go up and get saved again that day. And this is actually—that's not a thing, by the way. But this is what we see in churches sometimes. They do altar calls every week, and guess who comes up every week? It's like the same people, and you're scratching your head, going, "Wait a second, how does that work?" So we would rather trust in the power of God's Spirit when it comes to people's conversions. Just because you can convince somebody to come forward or you know, raise that hand or pray a prayer, it doesn't mean that salvation has occurred. And I'll just be honest, one of the most terrifying things as a pastor is to mistakenly have somebody believe that a walk to the front of the church has secured their eternal salvation when it hasn't. Right? So what I, what I do know for sure though, and I love this, is the gospel is powerful and effective. It has the power to save somebody when you preach it. This is really good news. So, if we preach Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for me as a sinner and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, people hear that and get saved. And I don't know how that works, but I know it works. And one of my favorite stories is the story of uh, Charles Spurgeon you know, famous preacher, one of my heroes. Uh, He was, uh, this was back in the 1800s. He was getting ready to speak at this auditorium and he wanted to go test out the acoustics beforehand because they didn't have microphones and all that. And I imagine he had a a good auditorium voice, but he wants to figure out where to put the pulpit and set up. So he goes in there, he thinks he's alone and he's, he's sampling the acoustics. So he cries out, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was it. That was the statement. And he didn't know it, but there was a worker tucked away in, in a corner someplace that heard it. And, and the story says that he dropped his tool belt and he just went home wrecked over his sin and over his need for God. And, and it was on his deathbed where he, he tells his conversion story. That's the day I met Jesus. That's the day I got saved. That's amazing to me. I love that that's the power of the gospel. And we've had those times when somebody will come up afterwards with tears running down their face and say, I don't know what's happening right now, but something's going on. God's doing something. It's like, yeah, he is. That's the way it works. So that's what we're convinced of here. The best thing that we have to offer at the door is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, that's it. That's the main event. It's way better than signs and wonders. Are they, are they cool? Sure. Whatever. But they're not the best part. Jesus is the best part. So I hope there's always an excitement and a buzz about what goes on here because there should be. We're, we're experiencing and worshiping the living God who has loved us and saved us. But the bottom line is that we want you to be grounded in what you know to be true and not what you feel, because feelings come and go. If you're basing it on your feelings, you know, that's not good. That's not solid ground to stand on. That's not going to sustain you through this difficult life, because feelings come and go. But the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, it remains forever. It's something we can stand on. Now, the next reason that we see people giving church a try, so to speak, is what I would call, dang, I'm in a tight spot, right? And this is, we've seen a lot of people do this. They come to church because their back's against the wall. They don't know where else to turn something, you know, a bomb's gone off somehow. And they, they, they're looking for a quick fix. And they, they reason, you know what? Maybe, just maybe God can provide it for me. So they show up to church. They nothing else to lose, right? Might as well give this a shot. I remember several times prior to becoming a Christian throwing up these prayers at times when I was in a desperate situation. I won't go into the desperate situations, but there were many where I would just be like, "Okay, God, if you get me out of this, I'll start going to church. I'll start doing what you know. I'll I'll pray more rosaries. I'll I'll start you know doing whatever I need to do." Um, that was pretty normal. In football, they call this a Hail Mary pass, right? This is at the end of the game. There's a few seconds left. You're behind. You have no other hope other than just to hurl something into the heavens and hope something miraculous happens. That's that's what I was good at. Um, If that's the only reason you come to church, because your back's against the wall, uh, you're either going to leave when you don't get the quick fix you were looking for, or when the smoke from the bomb clears, and then then you're going to clear out as well. Another reason we see people coming, it's, uh, we see people coming for the bennies, I would say, like the benefits, right? There's, there's, there's uh, everybody wants a good life. Everybody wants to, um, you know, have things work out for them well. And I think people sometimes figure, well, if I include God in what's going on, may- maybe some extra blessings will come my way. So if you want a good marriage, good kids, a good job, good health, um, if you just come to church, maybe check off those spiritual boxes, maybe, maybe God will be more inclined maybe even a little bit obligated to, you know, to come through and give you those things. Here's the question, though. What's the bigger prize? Is it God or is it the stuff He can give you? And this changes everything, the answer, the answer to that question. You know, there's this old saying that we all have a God-shaped hole within us and, and, and we, 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 only God can fill it. I think that's true. So if we only come to God because we want His stuff and not Him, how much satisfaction are we going to find? <laughs> None. In fact, I would argue that, that this is really, you're setting people up for idolatry if you're just trying to highlight the stuff and not God, because then you're, you're just worshiping the creation and not the creator. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that we really despise things like the, the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel, because that's what they're offering. They're teaching people they can use God to get rich, healthy, and successful. And, and that's not the prize. Jesus promised his followers that we would have abundant life for sure. Uh, don't I don't I don't want you to you know misunderstand that. But that that's talking about knowing God. It's talking about being reconciled to Him and enjoying the peace and the joy that comes from that. Not just getting His stuff. Do we get blessings as Christians? Of course we do. But that's not the that's not the the main point. This idea of, of abundant life also includes transformation. By the way, which which the big Christian word is sanctification. And you know how that comes about? <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's the hard stuff, right? It's the chipping away at the rough edges and, and, and the molding and the shaping. So it comes through things like trials and hardships and persecutions. These are what he uses to shape and mold us into the image of his son. So people don't want to hear, you know, come to Jesus and things are going to get hard, you know, come and die deny yourself, take up your cross. That's not going to fill the seats. Come to Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. That's what people want to hear, that you'll, you'll get a crowd if you, if you teach that. So anyone looking for that kind of teaching hasn't stuck around here very long, and we'll never try to attract people that way. But, but we will try to attract people with things like kindness and love and generosity. Um, we we've been kind of, we've gotten the reputation, which I love, of being a generous church, and a lot of that has to do with you guys and not not necessarily us. But you know, last year I think we gave out nearly fifty thousand dollars between the care fund and the missions fund to the, you know, to different people. We operate a warming center free of charge in Lapine. We have free food distributions. We talked about this morning. Uh, we let people use our our building free of charge all the time, and so we do offer bennies, you know, in that sense. And and, um, the reason we do it, though, it's quite simple. We want people to meet Jesus through it. We want them to see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven, connect the dots to him. And, you know, that's why we do it. And so this means we will always attract people who are in need. And we're happy about that. We will welcome people in need. Uh, But the hope is this, that they will come in here and have their greatest need met, that they will find Jesus who will become their greatest treasure. Right? So the next one is probably a little offensive, but I'm going to say it anyway. The next reason I see people coming to church is to join the other misfits, right? So the church kind of has a reputation. I know people are like, oh, sorry, but the church has a bit of a reputation of being a place filled with broken people who don't exactly have their act together, right? This is why we need Jesus. It's true. And so, you know, it's like, hey, maybe I can find a home there too. I've got some stuff going on and I don't know where I fit in life. So maybe I'll, I'll show up there and I'll fit in. It makes sense, it's hard to find your place in this world, isn't it? You know, people are always looking for community and, and trying to find acceptance and find a tribe where they where they fit. And, you know, so as the old TV show or song goes, you want a place where everybody knows your name, right? When you come in, you want people to yell, there you go. That's it. Find out who the old people are really quick. It's a show in the 80s. Yeah. Anyway, so church can be a welcoming place for those who are searching for this, and it can, it can provide a sense of belonging and community up to a point. Because the church is very unique in that it's made up of kind of an odd grouping of people. We don't necessarily have any business being together apart from one thing. And what is that one thing? It's, it's Jesus. That's why we meet. That's why we, we're all broken people. We're all sinners in need of a savior and broken people who have found healing in Christ. That's what, That's what the common denominator is. And if you don't have that, it's just a matter of time before you, you're not going to fit in so much, and, and you'll move on and look elsewhere. And then, and then the other one that we see people coming to church for, I would just call the a fire insurance policy. And, and unfortunately, I think this defines most people. This is the idea of I'll keep him close just in case. So, um, you know, of course, people would say they believe in God very often, and, and they, they definitely want to be able to call on Him in case of emergency And so the idea is um, I better, I better, you know, make sure that I'm on his good side. And the best way to do that is to show up at church every once in a while. You definitely got to hit Christmas and Easter. Those are mandatory, right? And then maybe show up every once in a while just to check in, make sure he still knows who you are, Um, check some of the boxes again, put some money in the offering box, whatever you got to do. But you definitely don't want to be accountable to him and you don't want him interfering with your lifestyle. And this describes a lot of people that call themselves Christians. They say they believe in God, but functionally they live their lives as though he didn't really exist. They have no relationship with God, no fear of God, and no concern over their sin. And, and this terrifies me because these are people that think they're okay. And when, when God, when, when they talk about this idea of people coming before Jesus at the end and saying, hey, remember me? I'm, hey, you know, we're friends, right? And what does Jesus say? I, I, didn't, I've never, I don't know who you are. I never knew you. And this scares me. But this is a reality of, of what we see. So, so these are some of the reasons that we see people coming to Jesus and coming to church. They all have kind of the same thing in common, and it's this. They seek to meet a need, a real need, but not your greatest need. None of them deal with the real reason that we need Jesus. We know that Jesus came for a very specific reason, didn't he? He came to save people from their sin and to reconcile us to God, and that is our greatest need. And do you realize that the the payment for your sin remains your problem to deal with apart from Christ? It's it's something you've got to to think about, because regardless of what society believes today, sin is still a problem that needs to be dealt with. And and I don't like it when I see people not taking sin seriously, because I, I have to ask Does God take sin seriously? He took it seriously enough to send his son to the cross to die. That's about as serious as it gets. And so for us to pretend like it's not a big deal is a mistake. One day, every one of us will stand before a holy God. And he will demand justice for every wrong done. According to his standards, not ours. So... You know, I'll just kind of go on record in front of you guys. I'll tip my hand and tell you the reason I come to church, the reason that I, you know, need Jesus. It's because I'm the biggest sinner I know. And, and I know we say that sometimes when people go, oh, you're just saying that. No, I'm not just saying that. I know my heart. I know my thoughts. I know what I've done. I know what I'm doing. I can predict what I'm going to keep doing, unfortunately. I know who I am before God. I'm a wretched sinner who doesn't deserve anything from Him. And yet in Christ, He's given me everything. He's given me love, forgiveness, acceptance, grace, mercy, and inheritance, a future home, a seat at His table. I don't understand this. But Jesus said, justice will be served, Brent, but I'm willing to take that justice on myself. You can give me your sin, and I'll give you my righteousness free of charge because I love you. I don't, I don't get it. But you want to ask me why I come to church? That's why. That's everything to me. I don't have anything else to lean on. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life, as the song says. So it's like Peter, when they, when Jesus asked Peter, "Well, are you going to go away too?" It's like, where else am I going to go? This is who I need. This is my everything. And there's nothing that excites me more than when I see other sinners come to this same conclusion. You know, this This is the deal, you know, the deal, the, the game changer. That's the word I was looking for. This is the game changer. When somebody recognized their true predicament and fall down before Christ as their only hope, it changes everything. Um, this is when I, you begin to see life's truly changed and transformed. And I would even go on record to say the people that I respect the most as Christians and that I don't doubt their faith and stuff like that, the people that are like this, they got to this point where they recognized how sinful they were how holy God was, and 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 this gap that stuck between those two spots that they couldn't fix. And, and this is where, when you, you recognize Jesus as the answer to that division, when you think of your sin this way, it, it gives you everything. And then Jesus becomes your only hope. So my hope and my prayer is that everybody who comes through these doors will, will come to that conclusion. They'll, they'll get this thing. Uh, but just like on that day when Jesus rode into town, the triumphal entry day, we know that that won't be the case. Um, as long as the church has existed, we've seen curious people pop in and pop out. That's the way it's gone. And, and it can feel like a negative thing or a discouraging thing sometimes. Um, but, but I believe, you know, I, I said this wrong last week because I'm such a half empty guy. There's a glass half empty and a glass half full. I tend to be one way. I'm not saying which one, but uh, I'm going to try to be a half full guy today. There's an upside to this because I think about the fact that non-Christians walked into a church. That's not a real common thing anymore. You know? So that's happening, that's good. And then I think about what they heard. All the people that have walked through these doors in the last 12 years, what have they heard? If we're doing our jobs right, they've heard the gospel. They've heard the message of Jesus, a savior. And so um, it's a privilege. It's, it's, it's wonderful that we have this opportunity. Um, we've, we've scattered so many seeds and even when we're harping on you to go to your mission, go to your mission, you're more seeds, you know, and then we're watering and then God is growing them and giving the increase. So we have no idea what God's going to do with them. But I love this idea that we're like a lighthouse just firmly planted on the shore of this community. And people are out there in the storms of life and they're looking for hope. And we're like, you know, Tom Bodet over here saying, we'll leave the light on for you. It's, it's right here. We'll keep it going. No matter when you come in, no matter who it is, they'll hear, they'll hear the light of the gospel. And so that's a very exciting thing. By the way, that um, knowing that there's people that come and go makes us appreciate this core group that we have all the more, um, the people that are faithful, that show up, that serve, that give, that keep everything going. We, we appreciate you so much. Um, it makes all the difference to us. So this morning, we've looked at one instance of Jesus riding into town, but the Bible provides two pictures of Jesus riding into town. And the first one, he rides in as a humble king, and he comes in peace with an offer of salvation for sinners who will receive him by faith. But the second one is much different. I would even use the word glorious for some and completely terrifying for someone else. It's going to look much different than the first one, and it hasn't happened yet. But John records it in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can meet Jesus as the king described riding in on a donkey or as the king described riding in on a war horse, but you will meet him. And today is the day that you can cry out, Hosanna, save me, and he will. And that's such good news for us. This is why uh, communion takes on such special meaning, because we know that Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? He's, he's gone to the cross and allowed his body to be broken for sinners, and he's allowed his blood to be shed for us so that we can have life. And this represents what he's done and who he is in a way that uh, represents our salvation, And so if you've, this table is certainly set for Christians, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, but if you've never done that, today could be the day that you do that. You can bow before him as Lord and hand over the keys to your life, right? Throw up the white flag and just give him everything because he's worth it. And then come and enjoy this time of communion. 1 Corinthians 11 says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you, or delivered to you, I'm sorry, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're new here, uh, we just come up and get the elements you can go back and pray and, and take them on your own when you're ready and then and then we'll sing a song when everyone's done